What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. Today, I'm talking with Travis Hornsby. Travis is a baller when it comes to student loans. He founded the Student Loan Planner, which is a great blog and podcast covering everything student loans. They also offer a one-on-one service for individuals looking for student loan plans. In our conversation today, we talk about how PSLF works. We get into key strategies that will have a huge impact on your bottom line. Travis also sprinkles in examples of student loan mistakes to avoid, and towards the end, shares his predictions for the future of student loans and talks about how this might affect you. So if you have student loans or you're curious how all this stuff works, you'll definitely enjoy today's conversation with Travis Hornsby. Travis, what's up, man? Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here, Daniel. So how in the world did you get into advising people on student loans? Well, I decided trading municipal tax-exempt bonds wasn't complicated enough. (laughs) So uh, in all seriousness, I was a bond trader and I worked for one of the world's largest investment companies and uh, really picked up some fantastic Excel skills, you know, really just got to use financial technology a lot in my day to day. Uh, and that part was really exciting because it was all these data problems and all these different, you know, kind of challenges we were facing and figuring out how to trade for active funds. Mm-hmm. But I realized it wasn't my competitive advantage. It wasn't my calling, if you will. And so I ended up getting, oh, I, I, I met my now wife and she was a physician, had a lot of medical school loans. And what blew me away is, you know, naturally I thought, okay, I can just put, pump this into a, you know, a principal and interest, you know, amortization model and just figure out when we're going to be debt free. Right. And uh, I did that. And I, then I realized, wait a second, hold up. There's uh, public service loan forgiveness. There's this program I never heard of before and she's eligible for it and mm-hmm. kind of went down that rabbit hole and tried to learn as much as I could about it. And I modeled it and put, you know, and then found, wow, we could, you know, she's in the last year of fellowship. She's seven years into this 10 year program. She's three years away from having her loans forgiven. So here I was all excited about, you know, how I was going to help her save all this money. Well, then it turns out I we, we sent in the PSLF certification form to Fed Loan. And uh, she had like three years of credit on one set of loans. And then the other set of loans, she had one month of credit. Oh, gosh. And they lost a bunch of the credit. And like if I had known all that I know now, I actually would have challenged it. I would have filed a CFPB complaint. I would have I would have done a lot to try to make sure that she got that problem corrected. Now, the thing is, is there's no way that she would have gotten more than three years of total credit instead of the seven she should have had. Mm -hmm. And that's because she had bad advice coming out of medical school. So, you know, nobody looked out for her. Nobody helped her make sure that that everything was done correctly. And so I thought, well, this shouldn't happen to anybody else. And I like doing student loans a lot more than I like uh, doing bond trading. So I'm just going to do this instead. And, uh, you know, in between, I have to admit, there was a about a year period of traveling the world, seeing all the about 40 different countries because I was really interested in the FI movement. And then finally, I decided, okay, I'm going to really commit to this. And my spreadsheet that I built uh, went viral and that got us a bunch of initial clients. And then friends of friends told people that, hey, there's this group out there that's helping people with only student loans and they know what they're talking about. And that's how we grew our blog into a big enough uh, presence that, you know, we had to hire multiple consultants. So now we're a a team of five consultants and about six or seven writers and kind of a staff around that as well, you know, that helps with uh, the website, the podcast, all of that. So we're one of the, I think the only group that's advised a billion dollars to student loans. Yeah, that's a, that's a big number. That's so you had mentioned your wife is going for PSLF, correct? Well, not anymore. I mean, so we we paid off the loans in full. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so the thing is, is basically she owed a relatively small amount compared to most medical stu- school students. It was six figures, but it wasn't your mm-hmm. typical 250 or 300. And so what I know now is she could have gotten her payment capped on the standard tenure plan once her income-based repayment number was surpassed. And you know, that would have enabled her to just pay on the standard tenure plan and she would have been able to get PSLF in approximately 2022. Obviously, I didn't anticipate the COVID forbearance. That was oh, yeah. not something that I put in my model. Uh, Man, you know, exogenous. You that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, on. you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys modeling the housing crisis. And I, I didn't know that housing prices could all fall nationally at the same time. So my whole model was trash, right? But uh, <laughs> but yeah, because yeah, if, if you modeled in these $0 COVID payments, uh, then yeah, she would have gotten even more forgiven. 
But yeah. at the end of the day, you know, we were debt free as of like 2016. We paid it off very quickly based off of this idea of like having lost a bunch of PSLF qualifying payments because of the bad advice, uh, consolidation advice that she got. The one okay. thing that's nice these days is physicians don't necessarily have to consolidate if you've gone to medical school after a certain date because you're going to end up with direct loans pretty much anyway. The one exception to that is there's some loans like Perkins and Health, well, Health Professions student loans are the biggest offenders. Um, basically, there's some loans for the Department of Health and Department of Health student loans do not qualify for public service loan forgiveness. So sometimes I see schools that are well-intentioned, but they put their students in some of these Department of Health loans because they have lower interest rates, but then they don't realize that you have to consolidate all of those loans to make them eligible for PSLF. So there's problems around that too, but but there's actually way more ways that people can optimize forgiveness than people are really aware of. And that's the, the makes like a lot of people think, you know, like I, I talked to some people out there and they're like, okay, it's, you know, come on. Isn't, can't a resident just sign up for the repay plan and just do the PSLF forms? Like they don't need advice. Right. And I would say that the answer to that is, is sort of, you know, because the problem is, is people tend to get married. They tend to have kids. They tend to, uh, have other things going on with their finances. And so I'm sure we'll talk about some of these scenarios. I'm happy to go into, uh, you know, as many as possible, but there's a loopholes. I'll just throw out a, a few of them, just the titles of them. Yeah. There's things like the breadwinner loophole. So if you live in the West Coast, you probably would qualify for that if you make more than your spouse does. There's things like the double debt loophole. So if one spouse has way more debt than the other, that makes some interesting opportunities. Also, there's just the marriage loophole that if you're married, you can file taxes separately. And sometimes that makes sense because you can get a much, much lower student loan payment. And then finally, there is the, there is the, uh, I guess I'm going to call this one the, the Biden loophole. Whether or not he wins, there will be a lot of things changing with student loans. It's going to make not paying your student loans back to look, look more attractive. So, uh, we can certainly talk about a lot of those things, but, uh, but just, just know that student loans are maybe a little bit more complicated than, than people give them credit for. Yeah. So it, it, that it does it from what you're just describing now, if I'm listening, it sounds pretty complicated. So if we try to kind of start, you know, on the foundation, boil it down, maybe we just start with PSLF. So if you could explain kind of like the most foundational basic description of PSLF, how would you do that? Yeah. So, you know, PSLF, most people have heard of it before. It's a program where you pay for 10 years while you're employed at a not-for-profit or academic or government employer while on a income-driven plan with federal student loans that are direct loans. So if you do that for 10 total years of cumulative payments, not consecutive, and you're working full-time hours while you're making these payments, then after 10 years worth of payments over 120 months, those loans are forgiven tax-free. That's the PSLF program. It's a fantastic program it's way, way cheaper than refinancing is. And most physicians qualify for it because most physicians end up in some sort of not-for-profit healthcare system. A lot of physicians even think that they're in a private practice sometimes and they're actually in a not-for-profit hospital system just because of the way that, you know, a lot of healthcare uh, systems are are structured in America. There's not that many HCAs of the world that are for-profit institutions, right? Mm -hmm. There's a few Kind of like caveats like PSLF, uh, you know, you, you know, some doctors like that are employed, for example, by Kaiser Permanente uh, in California cannot get PSLF because they're employed through a for-profit physician group contracted through a not-for-profit hospital. But there's but PSLF, that's the basics. You know, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. I get a little bit too excited. You know, I've had my coffee this morning, so I apologize, <laughs> Daniel, to your listeners in advance. But, you know, the the what you can do for your country act is like the, you know, main piece of legislation that the Democrats want to pass for PSLF right now. And if they ever got a majority in the House, Senate and White House, they would pass this. And this would basically allow people that have these older loans from before 2010 to get credit towards PSLF. So those FFEL loans from people that had loans before 2010, you know, suddenly the thing that happened to my wife would be fixed. They would literally go back and retroactively give those people credit so that they could get, you know, credit towards forgiveness, which would be a big deal. The other thing that they would do is they would create a program where you could get 50% of your loans forgiven after five years and the other 50% forgiven at the end of the 10 years. So that think about this for a second. Wow, right? Like if you are a uh, person planning on private practice, you better go do a one-year fellowship if you're doing a four-year OB-GYN program, right? Or I mean, you know, or, or, or you better do a same, you know, any, any, any four, three or four-year residency program. I just realized I couldn't think of a one-year OBGYN fellowship, but you know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, a lot of people since not-for-profit 
hospitals are the places where training usually happens for residency and fellowship, you know, that would be a, a boon, you know, I mean, you just go yeah. get an extra year worth of training and uh, get more specialized. And suddenly you get, you know, half of your $400,000 of student debt wiped away if that's something like that passed. So that's that stuff that might happen with PSLF. A lot of people are like, oh, you can't trust it. You know, I get that email all the time. I don't know about you, but like, you know, people are like, how do I, how can I trust this program? This seems like such a big risk. Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you hear that at all? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's probably the most common question. And I think a lot of people are thinking it and don't ever talk to people like people like us because they, you know, think we might, you know, of course we're going to say, you know, it's, it's a great idea, but that, that is a common question is like, is this, I think people think it's a bad bet or, or it's a, bad idea or they're going to get stiffed and it's not even going to pan out. And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say that if you were in a higher paying specialty of any kind, so, you know, something where you could make over $300,000, right? Like a field where private practice positions get paid a lot more than people at academic medical centers. PSLF is a bad idea, but that's just because the extra salary that you can get is, you know, really worth going and getting a private practice job financially, right? So that's mm. that's not that's not because PSLF is a bad idea. That's because if you're a private practice urologist, maybe you can make five or six hundred thousand dollars in an area that needs your services. Whereas in an academic center, you might make three hundred thousand. Right. So that's that's why PSLF isn't a good idea for higher paying specialties. For lower paying specialties, it's very much a good idea. You're going to have a hard time finding a private practice job that pays a lot more to compensate. Um, but for, in terms of the program, right? Here's what's happening with the program. Everybody doesn't really know this. We, we talk about this on our sites called the PSLF snowball effect. So because of the way the program was designed, the very first people that could get access to IBR got on it in 2009. That was the first time you could get on IBR. Well, PSLF was passed in 2007, but you couldn't sign up for a program that qualified until 2009. Yeah. And then medical students didn't start getting direct loans issued to them in school really until like 2008 to 2010. So the very first class of graduating medical student that could have had direct loans would have graduated in 2012. So if in, and, and maybe you would have had people that graduated sooner than that, but that knew how to do the consolidation paper application that might have been able to get onto it before that. But it's still a fairly small number of people. Like so people, yeah. So people in 2019 that qualified are the unicorns. People that qualified in 2020 are your like rare Siberian tigers, right? <laughs> People that qualify in like 2021 are your like, you know, threatened, you know, uh, mongooses. I don't know. I don't know. The, you know <laughs> Is a mongoose and, and, threatened? <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know the don't endangered know. species list. Something but, that's okay, endangered. But, but then, but by, by 2025 or so, by 2025, like the, the number of people qualifying for PSLF is going to be like a, a gnat. Okay. Yeah. You just, you know, it's just going to be so many. It's just overwhelming. You yeah. know, so so and that's the snowball effect. It's kind of like an exponential increase in the approving number of applications, because, you know, back in when I started this, even in 2016, the awareness of PSLF was really pretty poor. Uh, you know, people people still didn't know the program existed, that people were having a hard time signing up for it. Uh, back in 2012, 2013 time frame, there was a lot of issues. You know, the, the thing about PSLF is it's going to be this exponential approval rate increase and more and more people are going to get a ha- get, get that benefit. Uh, and, and it's going to be pretty exciting to see, uh, you know, in, in 2012, 2013, you know, people didn't really have any clue about PSLF really for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, it yeah. was not a program that had gotten a lot of deep penetration in terms of knowledge. Uh, and then by 2020, I mean, residents regularly talk about this like as the solution to all of their financial problems. Yeah. Right. Like this PSL program is the saving grace for a lot of people in terms of their psychology of like being comfortable going to medical school in the first place and having all this debt because, yeah. you know, medical school is very, very expensive. It's very challenging. And then becoming a physician is this arduous process where you're getting paid below market, you know, for what you're worth, uh, you know, while training for years. And then finally you become an attending. And oh, by the way, you have like people's lives in your hands and you also have all this risk of lawsuits and, you know, sometimes, you know, very tough hours and stressful jobs, patients that might not be grateful sometimes. So, you know, there's no kind of surprise that people can get a little burned out. And the PSLF anxiety is really, I think, just a function of just overall anxiety, you know, in the profession, which is just a very high stress profession at times. Yeah, we were we were working with physicians back in 2007, 8, 9, 10. And I can tell you from my experience, it was like the wild, wild west. It, most of them didn't know what PSLF was 
it took a while to even kind of get the basics uh, spread out and or, or, or uh, adopted the knowledge spread. By 2000 and say 10, 12, 13, people kind of knew about it, but there there was this skepticism with a lot of them and, you know, questions and bad advice, like you said. What what I'm surprised about, so nowadays it seems like most people know, you know, have good information relatively. There is some bad advice, but you can find good advice if you go look for it, like places on your site and that sort of thing. But there is still a surprising amount of people that are, you know, completely qualified and just are still completely skeptical of the program. What what would you say to, to that type of person? Is there something, you know, concrete they can go look at to kind of ease those tensions or? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, you need to be submitting the PSLF certification form every year with your employer and you mm-hmm. can do that online. So that every time you certify your income, you should also be certifying your credit towards PSLF. So you can just go into the FedLoan website and just get that form and just send it to your, your HR and they'll sign it and you'll submit it every year, once a year. That's going to build your paper trail towards PSLF. The second thing I would tell you is, you know, people that went to medical school are very smart. You have to understand some level of probability or statistics or math to be in medical school, right? So the thought that I have for you, for those people is this. So the worst case scenario, if you do not refinance your loans, is that you'll pay about 20% of the amount you borrowed extra in interest. So that's like just a kind of a rough rule of thumb. But so if you borrowed 200000 worst case scenario, you'll pay about 40000 of extra interest expenses from not refinancing. Yep. Now, the thing is, is with PSLF, generally the benefit is uh, maybe about 60 or 70 percent of what you borrowed. <laughs> yeah. OK, that's and that's like an average number. Right. So yep. so let's just use that 60 percent number. So let's say you've got deal or no deal. All right. And Howie is up there <laughs> and, you know, you're 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 the PSLF physician standing there with the, you know, having to make the decisions. Right. And uh, and you've got two uh, two cases. One of them says we will wipe away 60% of your debt. And the other one says, we will charge you 20% more than what you borrowed mm-hmm. uh, or extra on top of what you borrowed. So if there were 50-50 odds, there's two cases left, mm-hmm. you know, it would be foolish to take, you know, an offer that's, you know, zero. Basically, yeah. well, you know, instead of, instead of doing uh, 20% more or 60% less, behind this door the bank is offering you nothing right no no additional interest cost but that's you know no forgiveness right and that's that's the refinancing path so that's 50 50 odds and the thing is is the odds for PSLF are much better than that and again like i like i said earlier the key idea here is you shouldn't be doing PSLF if you think you want to go make money that's a bad idea like go mm-hmm. make money if that's your goal because it'll actually work out where it's much better decision financially to abandon PSLF for a higher salary but if you are at a not-for-profit facility anyway, then you know what people need to realize is this, this is not a bet that you can't afford to take. You know, forty thousand dollars over you know uh, five years is eight thousand a year. That's kind of like an expensive disability insurance policy. So imagine if you're spending money that's for a kind of expensive disability insurance policy that has the potential to wipe away sixty percent of your student loans. I mean, that's or seventy percent or eighty percent. That's still a great decision. So I think people just need to take solace. This sounds like a really nerdy thing, but take solace in probability, right? Probability is a real thing. If a professional better was able to have those odds, he would lose his mind. He would love it and just leverage the heck out of that bet, right? But you're being given that bet and the odds of getting PSLF, if you're at a qualifying employer anyway, it's 95%. And because again, do you think that the politicians are going to want to take away PSLF more after COVID or less? because of COVID. PSLF is way more secure because of COVID because, you know, previously you could kind of say, oh, those rich, greedy doctors, right? We're paying for their medical school for taxpayers. That's a silly idea. Yeah. Well, guess what? Now you can say, hey, you're taking away loan forgiveness from frontline workers that risk their lives. Yeah. Right. Politically, that's, that's, you know, I was already 90%, 95% confident in PSLF before this this pandemic and and I'm even more confident in it after. Right. Yeah, so it's like a home run bet, but it's really not actually even like a bet because it's not 50-50. It's it's, you know, the dealer doesn't normally win on this one. It's like you have a very very high chance of of winning it and it's a home run bet. Yeah, you want to talk about how people can pay less on PSLF? 
Yeah, I mean, sure. So think about this. So, you know, let's say that two physicians are married and let's just say they're both in training. So if you sign up for the repay program, which is what you're going to read in most publications, right? Sign up for repay and do PSLF. Then you'll pay, let's say people are both making 60000 a year each. So you'll pay probably around seven or $800 a month, mm-hmm. right? So if you do instead, if that person files taxes married filing separately, then they can uh, pay instead about 300 a month. Mm-hmm. So that's a big difference, right? Yeah. So that's about almost $5,000 a year. Uh, I see those kind of mistakes just really all the time with some of those loopholes that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I think the mistake that flies under the radar is the resident that just is approaching or say they're a medical student approaching residency and they're just thinking I'll defer payments completely and, you know, wait till I'm making, you know, a much higher income. I've got a lot of, I got a family or I got a house or let's just defer this totally. I'm always shocked how many people I come across that are going that path. What are your thoughts on that path? I mean, yeah, there is actually a, a special kind of deferment or forbearance that's for residents or fellows basically um, built into the program Mm -hmm. that people will just accept because it's easy to accept it. So yeah, that that is a problem. I'll say I've seen a lot less of that recently. Um, Mm -hmm. I think people, again, awareness of PSLF is much better. So people realize how bad of an idea that is. And so generally people, I think at the medical schools too, are giving better advice where people are consolidating straight out of medical school. Uh, for the most part, I would say probably 80, 90% of people are consolidating out of medical school now, which mm-hmm. kind of put, puts them into an income-based program automatically. I will say that's a really bad mistake though. You know, the thing is, is I would say that, you know, they're really obvious mistakes. I would say they're awful when they happen, but fewer people make those now. I still see people doing a lot of the not obvious mistakes sort of more frequently because they're the ones that people are less aware of. Yeah. So we were talking about kind of the medical student transitioning to residency. What other strategies present themselves? I think, at least in my experience, it seems like the best time to get your plan in order for your student loans is particularly in that kind of fourth year medical school time period. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, but any time really is the best time if you don't already have a plan. Now, the the one example here is like, say you've got a physician in California, right? And married mm-hmm. to, let's say, a stay-at-home husband. So let's say the physician's making about 200000 a year, husband's making nothing, and she's pursuing PSLF. So she could file taxes married filing separately. Well, in California, California is a community property state. So in California, mm-hmm. they require you to split your income equally across both spouses, you know, because it's a community property state operating under those rules on federal returns. So in other words, instead of making 200000 and making zero, like you would if you filed in New York. If you're filing in California, your federal income tax return has to say 100,000 income for the spouse or for, for the wife and 100,000 income for the husband. Yeah. So that splits the income evenly and eliminates any tax penalties from filing separate. And it allows the, the wife to pay 10% of just that 100,000 income instead of 10% of 200,000. So if she signs up for the pay plan and files her taxes correctly then that allows her to pay about maybe six or seven hundred dollars a month instead of about a thousand a month more than that. Yeah. What about so the, that's go ahead. What about the flip flop of that scenario? Yeah, great question. So in, in, in the case of the sp- person's making low low or no money, right now at least, because we haven't had guidance on this really issued by the Department of Education, you can also y- use alternative documentation of income. Mm-hmm. So you're able to use tax returns. If you want to claim that your income is not an accurate reflection in your tax returns, what you can do is submit what's called alternative documentation, which is usually pay stubs plus any other sources of income. So if the person, for example, was a resident married to, let's say, an attending, then she could submit and the attending had no student debt. They could file taxes separately, evenly split the income, but then say, hey, that's not an accurate reflection of my income, and then utilize pay stubs to get a low payment without any tax penalty. Mm-hmm. The, the the one thing that I would say to be cautious about with that is I would say be consistent. So if you are you know doing the tax return method, stick to the tax return method. If you're saying that your income is not accurately reflected by your tax return, consistently say that. That's why that way you pick one one method, if you will, and stick with it. Right? Like yeah. so think, think about you know a, a company that's constantly going between cash and accrual accounting. You know it's probably not a great idea. You probably want to stick to one method of accounting and and just write it out. So so that's and that's 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 a mistake that anybody in some of the bigger states are like Texas, Arizona, Washington State. You know, those are some of the bigger uh, Louisiana, some of the states that, that have to deal with community property returns. 
Um, it's basically any any place along the southwest or the west coast except for Oregon. And uh, and the other, another one that's kind of interesting is the double debt loophole. So this one can get away from people, um, but this one's kind of like two spouses have debt, and the best and uh, kind of application of this is both spouses going for PSLF. So let's say one spouse has got four hundred thousand in loans, another spouse has a hundred thousand. So the payments, if you file jointly, are proportional, meaning that the person that has four hundred k of debt has eighty percent of the debt, the person that has a hundred k of debt has twenty percent of the debt. So if you file jointly for taxes, then you know the payment would be split eighty percent towards the spouse's with the debt with a higher debt, and twenty percent towards the spouse's debt with a lower debt. Well, there's some situations where if you file taxes separately, the spouse with the high debt gets put on the pay plan. And that that can result in instead of paying, you know, 80% of that joint payment, the payment might only be, you know, just that person's income. So maybe just a fellow's income, let's say, right? And then the person that's on the smaller debt can pay the repay plan, which mm-hmm. gets that person a payment that's 20% of whatever the joint repay payment is. Yeah. So the the savings for the double debt loophole can frequently be, you know, a couple thousand a month. And, and, and the situations where both people are pursuing PSLF and their debts are not exactly the same. So that's one that is so like the, the community property loophole, the double debt loophole. Those are examples of loopholes that are as bad, you know, as doing deferment during residency. I mean, they're they're literally that bad. Uh, but there are ones that I would say are, are missed by probably, you know, 95 percent of the time uh, when I see people, uh, people's loans that we're analyzing. Yeah. So that's basically leveraging the benefits of two separate repayment plans, uh, given your situation. So maybe if you could take a step back and break down, you know, pay, repay, or probably different ones, yeah. ones, but you know, IBR comes in every once in a while. Yeah. So, so, so basically there's three major repayment plans. There's income based repayment, which is the oldest. That's 15% of your income. You, you can file separately on that one and you can also file separately on the pay as you earn. So the IBR and the pay as you earn plans, those are the two older plans that allows you to exclude your spouse without having to do any monkey business with the form of saying like, you know, I can't access my spouse's income, which is usually not accurate when people check that box. Mm. And so you can legally exclude your spouse's income with the IBR or the pay plan, you know, pays 10% of income. IBR is 15. The reason people use IBR is because sometimes people are not eligible for pay, you know? So, so that's one way to qualify for forgiveness. The IBR program and the pay program and the repay program, the repay program is 10% of household income, no matter what, with no cap. So that's the repay program. Each one has little little differences that can make a big deal in, in really specific cases. So, you know, if one spouse has loans, we're probably doing pay or IBR. If both spouses have loans and they're, you know, potentially thinking about doing private practice, then you'd want to do repay because repay has interest subsidies. The uh, the thing that I'll say that's really interesting is a lot more physicians should actually go for forgiveness outside of PSLF than currently do. And mm-hmm. the reason that is is because medical school debt continues to grow. You know, atten- you know, in- incomes for attendings in a lot of cases in primary care, especially primary care specialties and lower paying specialties, are not necessarily keeping up with the growth in medical school debt. So, you know, for example, let's say you have a pediatrician that's in private practice making two hundred thousand a year in California that owes, you know, 350,000. Uh, you know, if you model that in if that debt and income as a, if, if that person is single, then the going for forgiveness over 20 years is, is going to look better than refinancing is. Mm-hmm. And that person can pay 10% of her income for 20 years. At the end of the 20 years, you have to pay income taxes on the forgiven balance. The thing that I am particularly aware of is a lot of people think that if they don't refinance, you know, that's just the biggest, worst financial mistake they can possibly make, right? I mean, I get that kind of fear. People are so fearful of the high interest on student Mm -hmm. loans. And it's like, well, wait a second. You not investing outside of retirement is 100 times worse than you having more interest on your student loans, right? Not having, you know, not putting your money actually into the market instead of leaving it in a bank account, you know, that is way worse than you know, paying a little bit extra of interest on student loans, even if it's a five-figure number uh, of interest that you're paying, it's it's still not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. right? So the thing that I'm concerned about is that you know there's burnout, right? There's people that wish they could cut their hours back. There's people that they wish they could take a sabbatical. 
And that's really difficult to do when you have a $4,000 a month payment on student loans that you have no choice but to make. Whereas a payment on pay as you earn or repay, that's a percentage of your income. That by definition is always flexible. So what I'm seeing, for if I'm reading the tea leaves about what's happening politically, right? So we don't know when we're recording this yet, Biden or Trump's going to win. You know, Biden's currently favored, right? But But longer term, we know that Democrats and Republicans, you know, kind of swap the White House every few terms. You know, historically, you don't have one party control the White House, right? So we know that eventually we're going to get, you know, some more progressive policies on student loans at some point because student loans have only been getting more and more and more generous and not less mm-hmm. generous. So you've got this pretty monolithic move towards more generous government funded student loans instead of more stringent terms, right? And so one thing that's being discussed is eliminating the tax bomb. So today, when we analyze student loans for people, what we tell them is if you have a debt to income ratio of over 1.5, that means you should go for forgiveness even in the private sector. Mm-hmm. So if you have 200000 of income and your debt is more than 300000 then you need to go for forgiveness in the uh, private sector, You know, even though you might not get PSLF. And what we're seeing is, is if they eliminate the tax bomb for student loans for, for taxes on forgiveness, then that would make that ratio around one to one. So if you owe 200,000 of student loans, uh, you know, or more, then you'd want to go for forgiveness if your income was 200,000 or less. That's what, that's where I think we're heading. Now, Vice President Biden wants to go a step further. He wants to allow people to pay 5% of their income instead of 10% of their income. So if something like that were to pass, then that person that owes 200,000 of student loans would actually want to go for forgiveness if their debt was 120,000 or more. I think it's pretty widespread. That's a 0.6 debt to income ratio, which would virtually mean all people going mm-hmm. for, you know, paying back their medical school loans would not want to refinance. The only exception would be, you know, an orthopedic surgeon in a private practice environment that went to a state medical school. Mm-hmm. And and that is where we could be headed. I, I think that probably they'll realize that allowing people to pay 5% of their income towards their student loans is a uh, really stupid idea because at that point you should just make it free because it's probably going to cost the same amount of money. So yeah. so why why ask people to pay something at all if you're going to have them pay 5%? I think it'd be a lot more intellectually you know effective or honest to just make it a grant for people to go to medical school. But uh, so so I don't think that they'll probably have that particular thing happen. But I think what it represents is sort of a negotiating tactic, right? For example, Speaker Pelosi, like, did she want a $3.4 trillion stimulus bill? I think she used that number because that was what she wanted her opening round to be because she really wanted something in the, you know, two to $3 trillion range, right? Um, So I think that that's kind of the same kind of approach that I think you're going to see with student loans is... These more aggressive positions, right? Mass cancellation, you know, some of these more very progressive positions uh, that maybe even moderate Democrats would not be willing to support. That are that are, but you're going to see some big changes. That that you know, the the lowest hanging fruit probably is eliminating the taxes on student loan forgiveness. If you're in training, are you hanging tight, kind of waiting and see? Yeah, that's the thing. Is you know, and I, and there are a lot of people that I, that are kind of marginal cases uh, that are kind of on the fence about refinancing. I told them, listen, you got to wait till after the election. You got to see who's in the White House. You got to see who's in Congress. And then we're about to have a Higher Education Act rewrite. Right now, we have a Republican Senate, like a fair and a fairly and a fairly, um, I would say, I mean, a, a, you know, a Republican Senate with some room for error, too. Right. Because you've got 53 Republican senators with uh, the vice president uh, being the tie breaking vote. So, you know, that's that's a fairly that's a Republican Senate with margin for error to, mm-hmm. to stop a lot of legislation. Whereas if you have, you know, even if the Republicans have a majority, but they only have, you know, 51 seats or something instead of 53, I mean, that, you know, and say Biden has the White House, that could make this new version of student loan rules a lot more generous. Yeah. And again, the, the what I see is, especially for, you know, people that are, are you know, that have a lot more debt than their incomes uh, as attendings, you know, the upside for getting forgiveness can be substantially more, even in the private sector, than getting you know, PSL, uh, I mean, then getting refinancings, interest savings, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, and a lot of people ask right now, too, by the way, you know, does the uh, does the suspended payments count for PSLF? 
Uh, the answer is yes. So December 31st is when that expires. And then I expect it will be extended beyond that if Biden wins until September 2021 with zero payments that count for PSLF until that date. If Trump wins, I would expect that it would probably get extended maybe for another three months, mm-hmm. uh, but that it might expire in March 31st of 2021. But I just wanted to say that just because a lot of people uh, are are gung ho about PSLF uh, and 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 view it in the okay, sign up for repay, just get it, and that's or I refinance. Well, no, actually, the reality is it's way more complicated than that, and it's and it's way more tilted towards keeping the loans federal because it's kind of like you, your loans can be a tax or a debt. So one reason, so like all of the you know typical personal finance advice is debt is evil, pay it back. Whereas in reality, student loans with the federal government, you can pay them as a percentage of your income. If you're in the uh, not-for-profit sector, what that usually means is they give you a deduction based on your family size. So it's 10% of your income, but then you save for retirement, then you deduct your family poverty line for your family size, uh, you do other tax planning, and suddenly you're paying maybe 7 or 8% of your income after deductions, mm-hmm. right? And so that's an income tax for 10 years, and then the loans are forgiven. Now, in the in the private sector world of that, you know, you do that same seven or ten seven or eight percent of your income for twenty years, and then maybe kick in maybe two or three percent of your income for the tax bomb, and that's a ten percent tax for twenty years. Well, then you're trying to figure out: would I rather pay four thousand a month for ten years, or would I rather pay ten percent of my income for twenty years? Yeah. So that's interesting, kind of the way to think about it. What are the what are the classic refinance? No, is a no-brainer scenarios on the other end. I mean, generally, if you have uh, private sector employment and you've got debt less than your income, you should refinance. Right now, no, because you know federal loans have zero percent interest, and that's much better than you know, anything else you could get, right? Mm-hmm. But that, that would say that, that that's what I would say. It, it's a no-brainer enough that I don't think you're going to get hurt badly by it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I would say too is is you also need to have a spouse that's not going for any kind of forgiveness, him or herself. Because if you refinance your federal loans, that's going to affect your spouse. And sometimes the impacts, the negative impacts of you refinancing your federal loans can sometimes be more significant than the interest savings you're getting. Yeah. So you got to you gotta look at it as a couple always. Yeah. Yeah. I would, say, I would say particularly people that are married really need to be careful because there's all these ways you can mess it up. A lot of Fed loan people will tell you to check the box. I can't reasonably access my spouse's income. And right below that, it says... Remember that lying on this form is a federal crime punishable by, you know, fines and imprisonment or both. And and yet, you know, you, you know, Fed loan people are telling people to do this in a lot of cases. Uh, and it's and that's and that's, you know, especially in the case where, you know, maybe you could make an argument if you filed separately for taxes or something. But a lot of people check that box even when they file jointly. And hey, guess what? That's like 100 percent fraud because you signed on you signed your signature on the tax return that has both of you and your spouse's incomes on it. So if they ever did decide to audit this program, which I expect they will when the bill for this soars in the mid-2020s, right? The bill for this is going to soar to where it's more expensive than NASA. You think they'll start doing regular audits of everybody? They'll have to, right? Because they do do that for the IRS. Uh, Now, Mm -hmm. I will say that the budget for the IRS audits has been slashed, so they do audits a lot less than they used to. But, uh, you know, but I think that eventually... You know, they're going to audit this program and they're going to find stuff and they're going to penalize people. You know, they're probably going to go after the worst offenders, uh, you know, so that's why I said, you know, I mean, you might get away with some of that, uh, you know, but I, I would recommend being honest and also uh, using the things you can use to to not have to do anything that's you know, kind of questionable, right? Like yeah. filing taxes separately, uh, getting on the right repayment plan allows you to exclude your spouse's income. You know, the the thing with the servicers that people should realize is like Navy settled a lawsuit recently and the, the key defense that they put forward was that they are not fiduciaries. <laughs> they basically they basically said that they're under no obligation to give correct advice about student loan repayment. That's basically what they said in the lawsuit and the judge agreed and that's why they won. So what does that mean? Well they always tell you, oh don't pay for student loan advice, you know, when it's free. Well uh, that free advice, they literally just said in a court of law that the advice has no merit and you can't trust it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, yeah, it's free. It can also be the most expensive free advice you ever, you've ever gotten. Just like, you know, when you take your buddy's advice to invest, uh, you know, you know, in, in random stocks. Right. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. the thing is, is the, the buddy might be right. Right. The, that, that, you know, brother-in-law that said invest in Tesla. Wow. He was a genius. Right. 
but you know, <laughs> luck can and 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 skill is not the two same, not the same thing. And so just you know, be aware of that. Yeah. So I think just be careful with with the loan servicers telling you things. A lot of times, I would say. I would say a, a scary amount of the time, it's not accurate information. Yep. And it, it's, you can call in five different times and get five different answers. It's a common thing. Do you, so if somebody's starting in practice, so let's just say I'm about to enter into employment with a PSLF qualified employer, and maybe they're paying me a stipend for my loans. What sort of problems can you see cropping up around this? Yeah. So this is a real popular idea with, 60-year-old HR directors that listen to Dave Ramsey. <laughs> so the the idea is that, you know, you're going to, you know, maybe they have a rural hospital, they're having a hard time recruiting somebody, and so they're going to give you, you know, a signing bonus, they're going to give you 125000 towards your student loans, and they're going to pay it out 25000 a year for five years. The problem with that is sometimes they insist they want to send the check directly to the servicer. Well, in that world, you're going to have a higher AGI because you're going to have extra 25K a year of income. So your payments for your student loans will go up by 10% of that number for the following year. So your payments will be $2,500 higher for the following year. And furthermore, that payment is not going to help you at all because if you're going for PSLF, the balance is going to be forgiven anyway. So the employer's losing $25,000, you're losing $2,500, and you're not getting any benefit at all. So you're losing $2,500. 27500 in that case. So it's like a cost. It's a cost of getting <laughs> that. So what I tell people is you have to push back aggressively on hospitals that are not-for-profit that want to give you a stipend for your student loans. You need to say essentially that this is going to be for my student loans, but I don't want any paternalism over having to use it on my student loans, okay? Uh, and so in other words, you should structure it more so as a bonus that you can use on anything instead of, uh, and, you know, instead of, of something that they insist on sending, you know, a letter to your employer to, or, you know, to your servicer, to, I mean, to verify that you've used it on loans. Yeah. There are some exceptions, like there's the NHSC program where you can work for like a you know, community health center or something. And you can get, I think it's 50000 every two years tax-free. So $25,000. So what you can do with the NHSC program is reimburse yourself uh, for income-based payments. At the end of the, you know, at the end of the year or the end of the two-year period, they sh- need you to show proof you use the money on student loans. Well, the money's tax-free, so it doesn't increase your AGI in that case. And then it mm-hmm. also, you're allowed to reimburse yourself for payments. And you, know, you still might have money left over that you use on loans. It doesn't help you any, but it doesn't raise your income, so it technically doesn't hurt you at all. So, yeah. you know, when people get the NHSC benefit, I basically tell them, well, at least you're getting your income-based payments basically paid for you. And yeah, you're putting in that little bit extra on the loans, which that'll be forgiven with PSLS. So essentially, you're not having to pay anything at all in your loans if you work there long enough. Yeah. So that's more complimentary to the program. but then That's more complimentary, yeah. When they're paying you straight out, it can be actually a cost. We've seen that come up several times, and we will suggest, you know, like you said, rigidly opposing it. And in some cases, they are pretty staunch. And in and, and a couple of times, we've had to suge- suggest that they just refuse it completely. Uh, I've never had a client actually where the hospital refused it at that point, but it seems like they will negotiate if you. Well, I mean, I, I think I think when you tell them that twenty five thousand dollars that you want to give me for my loans, it would actually hurt me more <laughs> than it would help me. So don't pay it to me. Right? I think You're that, like, Whoa. I think I think that get that gets their attention. This is for real. Like, that you're like they're like wait a second what. Like we, I think we screwed something up. Like, <laughs> They're like either paying, this guy's lost their mind or yeah, he's got. Well, I mean, and and again, it's like I said, I, I joke about like the sixty-year-old HR director that listens to Dave Ramsey, but like it really usually is someone like that designing you know programs for physicians to try to recruit re- physicians, and it's 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 done with a very much like the nineteen nineties nineteen eighties kind of hat on, you know, back when medical school cost you know fifty thousand dollars for four years you could pay it back with, you know, the first year of attending salary pretty quickly. Uh, you know, that's the mindset that people come from with student loans. And that's how student loans were for many years. But the thing is, is the government got involved in the student loan market and it increased access, which is a wonderful thing, but it also increased prices, right? And so now you have loan sizes that are much higher than they've normally been because schools know, medical schools are very aware that they can have you get your loans forgiven with PSLF or let you pay based on your income. So they know that they don't need to care what they charge you. Um, and so if you're going to use 
the you know approach that people use to pay off loans before the the debt was so big, you're kind of trying to fight uh you know this battle with the the weapons of the last war. You know, you've got to use the, the modern approach to deal with a, a very modern problem of outrageously expensive uh, medical school debt. Yeah. So I want to talk about IBR or IDR for a bit. Um, so IDR, income-driven repayment, uh, there, there's a few different choices and ways to apply. I think what I see most commonly is people think of it as the annual thing that they have to do, you know, around that anniversary time. Can you talk about the other ways that they might potentially be able to verify income or how it works. It's, it's, it doesn't seem like it's quite as simple as just that once a year exercise. Well, so, I mean, so the easiest way to do it is just, you know, put it on your, your phone. Like whenever they ask you to certify your income, go for the next 10 years and just literally put in on your Google calendar, your Apple calendar, like reminders to go certify your income and they'll ask you and then you just have to go in and click the link that'll take you to a recertification page on studentaid.gov and you just go through the process and just click the, the buttons i will say this long term the process is going to get easier yeah. long term they've passed legislation that allows for people to automatically recertify without any effort just by like allowing the irs to pull their information for them so this process will be getting easier long term so don't don't freak out like over the next 20 years this process is going to get better because, you know, the government's committed so hard to having this be a system that is really important for the nation's, you know, higher education finance. Yeah. So I would just say, just remember that you can, you know, submit using your tax returns, try to link to your tax returns. Uh, don't don't try to get fancy with it. Like some people like to file extensions just so that they can use older tax returns and stuff. Like I don't, I don't kind of like doing that. I like just being straightforward, filing your tax returns on time. And, uh, you know, unless there's a very good reason not to. And then, you know, if your income falls, just remember that you can recalculate your, your income whenever you're, uh, whenever you want, when your payment falls, uh, sorry, your mm -hmm. income falls is what I meant to say. Um, so if you go part time, if you take a sabbatical, uh, you know, you can contact your, your servicer or you can better yet, you can go on studentaid.gov and then you can go into the manage the IBR, uh, section and then you can recalculate your payment to a lower number and just use pay stubs or just even a signed affidavit saying, yeah, I, this is what I made or this is what I'm making right now. Yeah. On the surface, it's one of those things that seems straightforward, but I think some of the more strategic minds or analytical people could kind of get into some gray area like, you know, how do I define a sabbatical? Uh, what what uh, exactly is my income? You know, there's a lot of gray that can kind of come into play there. It sounds like you kind of try to play that. Your income is always what's on your tax return from the most recent available tax return. Okay, that's that's what your income is. Or if your income is less than that, if your current income is less than that, then you can recertify with anything that gives you proof that it's lower. Mm -hmm. They think about it like that. You're you're under no obligation to tell them when your income rose, but you are allowed to tell them that your income fell. What is the? Do they have specific rules on? how they define your current income? Like if you have a month sabbatical or a two month sabbatical, like, is there some guidelines on that? I would say, I mean, there's not really guidelines. I'd say anything longer than a month. I mean, yeah. you know, you have, you have to generally have a couple paychecks or a couple periods, which to prove it. So, you know, if you've got two or three paychecks worth of proof, that's enough. Yeah. I mean, if I'm like, a, you know, thinking strategically, I'm like, well, I'll just, that's it. There's almost incentive to take, you know, a break between, training in, in practice potentially, right? I see what you're, yeah, I know. What you're, yeah. I see what you're saying. I mean, you know, theoretically, if, if the training break is going to be at least two months, you could certainly, you know, you could certainly do that. I, in practice though, I think there's just kind of a limited benefit though, because you're talking about payments and training are usually two or $300 a month. And those payments persist, uh, for 12 to 18 months into training because of when mm. certification for IBR happens. So it generally happens in, you know, November, December is a real common time frame. Uh, and November, December is using the tax return from the prior year. Mm -hmm. So most people go into practice in summer, uh, you know, and or, you know, fall, let's say they go into practice in the fall, they recertify in November, December. Well, they're using their returns from residents where it's $300 a month. And they're using that from basically the fourth month out of training uh, through the uh, 16th month out of training approximately. So yeah. for the first like, you know, year and a quarter, let's say for the first year and a quarter out of training, your payments are $300 a month. Well, $300 a month, would you rather pay zero versus 300 or would you rather go to work one month earlier and make an extra 12 grand? <laughs> 
or yeah. 15 grand. You see what I mean? Well, it's also, you also got to be careful with the flip-flopping back and forth. Like you had mentioned earlier, you don't want to be one year tax return, one year sabbatical, one year tax return, you know? Yeah. So that's why I say student loans are kind of simultaneously simple and complicated, right? It's simple in the sense that you should never let a life decision be affected by your student loans ever. Mm-hmm. So any any decision that you're going to make, you should make it as if your student debt was zero. Yeah. Then now that decision is made, now you need to look at your loans and figure out, well, what's the best way I can pay this given that this is what I want to do? And that's yeah. when things kind of get complicated. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it because a lot of people are like, I am going to structure my life around my student loans. I tell you what, I saw this. I had this one case. It was awful. It was the guy was driving one and a half or two hours one way every day. And the other and the spouse, the other spouse was driving like an hour each, you know, each way the other way. Yep. (laughs) Because they were both trying to get jobs at community health centers because they got some sort of, you know, benefit like that. And it turns out that the benefit they were getting was virtually useless. Right. Because <laughs> because their income based payments were lagged for the first two years and so their payments were going to be like pretty you know pretty low. And so they had to use that money to reimburse themselves and they didn't have much to reimburse. So most of it was going towards their loans, which were going to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. So I told them that, hey, actually the past, you know, two years you guys have been doing this program that's really not helping you very much. And man, you could hear a pen drop. <laughs> like they're like, you're telling me that I've been, I've driving, been driving an hour. Like, an I've been hour. driving like a hundred miles a day each way, you know, in the freaking like five foot snow sometimes in the winter. <laughs> and you're telling me that I, I could have been at the hospital down the street, like my whole, yeah. like the whole time, like, cause I didn't even need this benefit. Like, you know, so people really make some pretty crazy uh, yeah. decisions. You know, I've had people too that have like, were really close to doing, you know, practice buy-ins or, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, and because they thought they needed to make enough money to pay their loans back. That's another thing that's interesting too. And on the flip side, right, is, oh, I got to go to out of the way, nowhere place or else I'm not going to make a high enough income to pay my loans back. And that's the number one thing I have to do. And they go there, they buy in, they're miserable, they get stuck. And and they, when they really wanted to work in, you know, some big fun city for less money, but they just thought they couldn't. And then they find out like, wait a second, you actually should have moved to, you know, Seattle anyway, um, because you can pay your loans as a tax. And yeah, being a pediatrician like in Seattle, it's not the best thing, but like you can still work for a private practice and have a decent life, a decent house, and yeah, uh, and not and not go for forgiveness in the traditional ten year sense. You can use it in the twenty year sense. And they find that out, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I lived in the middle of you know, uh, you know, on top of this mountain in rural, you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. for just no reason." Right. Well, PSL in itself doesn't make you happy. I mean, you have to focus on your values and then. And it doesn't make you rich. (laughs) No, it helps you be less in debt, you know, but it's not, it's not a, the end all be all. And it's, I've, I've come across the same, you know, many people that are slugging to work and just totally dissatisfied. And I'm like, you know, do you really want to do this for for 10 years or, you know, five years or whatever it is? Yeah. I mean, you got to, and that's so interesting, isn't it? Like, because, you know, assets, there's two part of a net worth equation. There's assets and debt. Mm-hmm. And people get so focused on the debt side of the equation, they don't ever think about the asset side of the equation. Yep. Right? Like, I can um, I can avoid, you know, eating chocolate cake as much as I possibly can, right? But it's probably not going to result in me bench pressing 500 pounds. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, you have to do the hard work of, like, growing your assets if you actually want to have a great, you know, financial, you know, path and security one day, because, you know, you can't eat zero debt. I mean, and that's the problem is, is like people pay off the debt and then they kind of almost have a lot of times I, I call it like post debt depression. You know, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, like, I guess, what do I work on next? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's like, well, what was the point? Like I made all these sacrifices and like, and I don't feel any different. And now I'm at the point where I'm 40 years old, I'm debt free. I make a lot of money. But I have like literally nothing to show for it financially for the past 20 years of my life compared yeah. to my friends who, you know, are already halfway done with their mortgage and have a six figure 401k and they've got some money in a, you know, they've saved up, uh, you know, for yeah. other things, 529 accounts. So that's why I say, you know, you have to save for other goals along the way. Otherwise, you're going to have debt regret or debt depression. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's one thing that I'd encourage people to do 
uh, is, is, is even, you know, if you're going for forgiveness, you know, try to plan as if you had to pay the debt off anyway, but mm-hmm. take that money, figure it out yourself or hire a financial advisor like you to figure out, well, how do I, you know, invest for the max to my retirement accounts? And then importantly, I would argue for physicians too, how do I invest beyond that? Because I see uh, physicians are, are really great at maximizing their retirement accounts because they're right in front of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, putting five to 10% of your pay into something, it will often maximize an account for a physician you know, which is a fairly modest n- number, uh, five to 10%. Whereas, you know, if you want to invest more than that, you have to have other, you know, opportunities for investing out, you know, that, that are not capped like a 401k or 403b is. So it's just, uh, it's pretty interesting that I see people's like next level thinking when they realize what they need to do with their loans, then they get excited about saving and, and investing. And that's what really makes them financially secure. And, and the, the lack of anxiety they now have about their debt because they're growing towards their, their financial security in the future that makes them uh, a lot less anxiety with their debt. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the fire movement. It, 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 fire financially independent is a good thing, but in itself, it's not really going to be the key to your happiness. It's potentially could be, you know, feeling empty at the end of it. It's yet you, you have to kind of take a step back and say, what's the purpose behind this whole thing I'm doing. And so as we wrap up, I was curious, you were talking about auditing and, and that sort of thing potentially in the future. And, I agree. I think that's going to be a, a big deal. And even if it's not, I think it's a good kind of frame of thought for people to 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 use to kind of go into their loans uh, so that they're thinking, OK, if I were to get audited, how might I structure this? So if, if that if somebody was asking you that, like, how do I structure my stuff? What are good practices to to follow so that I am kind of like bulletproof in the event of an audit? Yeah, just don't do any of the shady stuff that we talked about, yeah. right? Don't, 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 don't check. You know, I can't access my spouse's income, which is intended for domestic uh, violence victims. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, they're like, "Huh, you can't access your spouse's income, but you guys yeah. are like in every picture on your Facebook together." Like, uh, right. I don't know. And uh, and then I had I had one person tell me, "Well, no, my my husband literally refuses to share any of uh, his financial information with me." And I'm like, "Why yeah, are you married?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know. So the other thing is is like I said, you know, I mean, you know, a lot of people kind of think like something like a, a community property loophole sounds a little too aggressive. Well, that's something I can defend. I mean, you can just say, "Well, it's it's 10 percent of the AGI." And it's concrete. Just the spouse's AGI, and then the federal ru- rules require people to, you know, equally split the AGI. So mm-hmm. we're not doing anything illegal. We're doing it by the book. Uh, we're just doing it by the book in a way that benefits you. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what tax advice kind of is, right? I mean, right. You know, Follow the rules within the rules yeah. and uh, objectively, and don't don't push too far into the gray, especially when it gets into this. Uh, stuff and, and you got to be able to pass it, it's got to pass like the you know litmus test of like can you can you are you going to be comfortable telling a an auditor this explaining this to an auditor yeah i mean at, at the end of the day as long as you're honest you try to portray that to the auditor yeah that, that you're trying to follow the rules even if the rules were kind of a gray area uh you know i mean generally what what i hear people do is, is you know if you if you report everything uh then you know the worst they can do is restate things and make you pay a little extra, right? But if you tried to hide something, that's when you can get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. So, you know, the community representation. Yeah, exactly. And and so, you know, I mean, there was a gray area for a while about whether or not it was legal to not give them your current income as an attending, yep. you know, when you're recertified. And and so we that was a gray area we operated in a while and we, we told people to give them tax returns because it was illegal thing that you could point to one day and say, well, the reason I didn't give you pay stubs is because the most recent reflection of my income was my tax returns. I yeah. haven't made my attending income yet for an entire year. So theoretically, you know, I get a hit, get hit by a bus tomorrow. I haven't earned that income yet. Right. You know, so there's ways that you can defend it. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I think that the main thing I can think of is just don't check the can't access my spouse's income box. Uh, and, uh, and that's probably mostly it, honestly. I mean, I, I can't really think of anything else people do that's particularly shady. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, Travis, thanks for being with us today and going through this. This is awesome. I, I love what you're doing with your business. I'm so excited to kind of see, you know, some, some more of the good guys doing the good thing. And, and that's always great. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, um, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, is it okay to share where people can find us? Yeah, that was that was what I was going to ask you. Is what what? How can people find you if they're looking for help? 
Yeah, so the podcast is a great free resource, Student Loan Planner Podcast, anywhere you can listen to, to pods. And uh, studentloanplanner.com, we've got a lot of uh, calculators now. So we've got the we've got a, an online version of PSLF calculator, uh, a lot of blog posts for physicians, and, and a lot of free stuff to check out. Those are the free resources. The paid resources are a few hundred dollars to get a plan from one of our CFP or CFA consultants uh, that mm-hmm. we've, we've done, you know, a bit like I said, a billion dollars of student loans that we've advised. So a lot of physicians are really busy and would love to hit the easy button for a few hundred bucks, right? So that's what we do. All we do is student loans. So we're not, you know, trying to be your financial advisor and have a deep relationship like you would. We're just kind of like the, uh, what's a good word? We're like the Starbucks of student loans, you know, <laughs> yeah. consistent quality, you know, affordable price, repeatable, it's all, yep. repeatable. It's all we do. And we go deep and it's personalized. It's not like it's just, you know, cookie cutter because it is very specific. You know, that's why we assign a consultant to it versus do an online course is because we've studied it and we get a lot better outcomes when we assign a consultant to make the plan and implement it with a person. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so if you, people are interested in that, they can go to studentloanplanner.com. There's a, 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 a hire us, you know, part of the menu they can click on and book a time with one of our people. Awesome. Yeah, no, I I appreciate it, man. I keep up the good work. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors. Thank you.